Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Sarah Weck to the show today. He is a renowned board-certified forensic pathologist for the past 54 years. He's personally performed approximately 17,000 autopsies and consulted on an additional 37,000. He's also a lawyer in his home state of Pennsylvania. As a private consultant, he performs autopsies domestically and internationally and testifies at trials. Sometimes he's retained by prosecutors and other times by defense counsel. He is really considered a Columbo in his profession. He's lectured and provided seminars in over 50 countries. He's also court qualified in numerous trials and examinations from one side of the country to the next. Many of you have heard of him. He's been on television before in high-profile cases across the world and has stood up to the Warren Commission on the Warren Commission's botched autopsy and forensic examination of John F. Kennedy. And he was the only person that questioned the lone bullet theory. He deserves tremendous respect. It's a great honor for me to have you on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Sarah Weck to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Oh, good morning to, to you, and I thank you so much for providing uh, this opportunity uh, to me. Uh, Kim, it's a pleasure to chat with you and to share uh, some thoughts and respond uh, to some uh, inquiries and maybe uh, special uh, cases and uh, events in the field of forensic science. First of all, even though I don't do what you do, thank God, <laughs> I share, <laughs> along with so many other people around the world, a fascination with the realm that you are stewarding. You are in science, you are in law, you are treading very complex, very delicate power circles in your field of discovery. And I thought it would be helpful to explain to the public the chain of command when somebody dies. Who has jurisdiction over the body? What's the circle of people involved when somebody dies in a way that's unexpected or appears to be criminal? Well, the answer is that any death which would fall into uh, one uh, or a combination of the following uh, categories, descriptive categories, violent, sudden, suspicious, unexpected, unexplained, medically unattended, uh, known, alleged, uh, suggested um, homicides, accidents, suicides, any case which is not a natural death uh, where or, or a case which is uh, perhaps uh, quite reasonably considered to be a natural death with a physician who has been uh, in attendance. It doesn't have to uh, be necessarily as it used to be in the old days, a 24-hour rule. You can have heart disease of a very serious nature, be 86 years old, and have been under a doctor's care for 35 years following coronary bypass surgery, for example, but you haven't been to the doctor for the last week or so and you die at home. Well, in the old days, under the 24-hour rule, that would have been a reportable case and so on. Today, not so, because people... Uh, live longer, and uh, all kinds of surgical and medical uh, therapeutic interventive uh, process, uh, procedures and so on. But uh, going back then to what I was saying, um, medically unattended death, 
um, unexpected, unexplained, <clears throat> violent, sudden, suspicious. These cases then would be reported to the coroner or medical examiner's office, depending upon uh, which kind of office exists in respective jurisdictions. Usually, uh, in the metropolitan areas, they will have homicide detectives handling these cases initially, as well as, of course, the people who are the uh, forensic science investigators from the coroner or medical examiner's office under uh, state law or, uh, well, every every state and, and the laws of regions that have set up their own ME systems, um, it is that office which uh, essentially has the primary jurisdiction and authority. It's not a matter then of, of, of uh, competing with anybody. You cooperate and you collaborate uh, uh, wholeheartedly and happily with your um, colleagues, people in homicide who are homicide detectives and so on. But I'm just pointing out in answer to your question that from a technical, legal, procedural standpoint, it is the ME office or the coroner's office which has jurisdiction over that body. So what happens um, the office is notified sometimes by the police, or the office may be notified first, and they will then they call the police. Uh, both uh, entities uh, will uh, send personnel there. Uh, the uh, scene will be uh, viewed. Uh, if there's someone there who knows anything about it, a family, a friend, a neighbor, what have you, they'll be uh, asked about what they know concerning the decedent and so on. If you get information about medical care, then you'll get in touch with the physician and find out whether that person had a disease process, which uh, quite uh, reasonably uh, could be inferred to have been the cause of death and so on. And you then make a decision whether or not that will be an ME or coroner's case uh, or whether it will be released. Uh, that decision is made by a trained investigators in ME and coroner's offices. Sometimes it's kicked up to the supervisors and sometimes it's kicked up uh, to the forensic pathologist. There may be the coroner or the chief. Uh, sometimes it depends uh, on, you know, whether, uh, you know, sometimes things are a, a, a close call, a tight call, and so on. From my perspective, you err on the conservative side. You, you err on the side of uh, assuming jurisdiction and deciding whether or not to do an autopsy rather than release the body prematurely and maybe miss something. So let's say the decision is made and the body is uh, considered to be a coroner or ME case. It is then brought to that facility and um, the initial procedures include uh, the taking of a photograph uh, and logging in and proper documentation. And the next decision is whether or not it will, that case will be an autopsy or whether it may be what we call an external examination. Uh, there are probably no, no offices, um, certainly not the larger ones with a large number of bodies that, that do 100% or even 75% uh, autopsies. The rate varies. In some cases, then, 
the body's been brought in, you've obtained additional information that wasn't readily available, and you do what is called an external examination. Um, you view the body, make sure that there's no evidence of trauma, nothing to suggest foul play, and you draw blood for toxicology, but you have enough information of this 74-year-old person who has had chronic lung disease or metastatic cancer and so on to feel comfortable in signing the case out without performing an autopsy. Once you decide to do an autopsy, then, in my opinion, you should do a complete autopsy. There should not be uh, what uh, some people uh, do. Uh, in fact, <laughs> surprisingly, at the very excellent office where I trained some uh, 50 uh, years ago, they did uh, partials. I, I never appreciated it at the time. And later on, I came to strongly disagree. They would uh, do a case, and if they found something uh, when they went in, like uh, cirrhotic liver or uh, a uh, myocardial infarction or something, they would stop. Well, I think uh, that's unwise. You do a complete autopsy, and you examine all the organs and tissues, including the brain. You withdraw blood, bile, and urine for toxicological analysis. Sometimes you uh, also draw fluid from behind the eye, vitreous humor, it's called, and sometimes you may even want uh, tissues, pieces of liver, uh, kidney, in some instances uh, lung, depending upon what you're looking for. So that's all done. Photographs are taken as you proceed, and certainly um, detailed sequential photographs if you're dealing with a gunshot wound case, a stab wound case, beating uh, traumatic injuries, motor vehicular accident, industrial home accident, and so on. You want to document all of that. You want to memorialize all of those things with good forensic photography, which is a vital part, by the way, of the overall medical legal investigative system. So you do that, and uh, then you either feel comfortable in signing the case out then and there, if your findings are definitive and uh, unequivocal, uh, or you pen the case until you get back toxicological um, test results and maybe uh, further information. Uh, homicide detectives, um, you may want to learn more. You could even have a case where the cause of death, and this is not rare at all, not at all rare, where the cause of death is, uh, is unquestionable, a gunshot wound of the head, for example. The question is the manner of death. You see, he, and we have five manners of death on ME coronary death certificates that doctors and hospitals do not have. If a doctor or a hospital signs out a patient and um, fills out a death certificate, there's no place that says check off manner of death. It is assumed, it is implied by virtue of that <clears throat> death certificate being utilized that it is a natural death, which gets back to what I said a couple of minutes ago, anything but a pure, clear, unquestionable natural death uh, should be, by definition, a coroner or medical examiner's case. So the coroner, ME, there are five manners of death with little blocks on the death certificate. And going down in uh, decreasing order of uh, frequency of occurrence, natural, accident, suicide, homicide, or a fifth one, uh, pending, undetermined, where you're just not sure. So going, going to my gunshot wound of the head case, we know what killed him, the gunshot wound of the head and extensive damage to the brain and multiple fractures of the skull. We don't know for sure, maybe, was it a homicide, was it an accident, or was it a suicide? 
three possibilities, right? Right. Say you find somebody in a car, in a garage with carbon monoxide. There's no note. There's no hookup uh, to the exhaust system and so on. So cause of death is quite clear. He's uh, a bright uh, cherry red. You do a fast uh, carbon monoxide test. You get a 75% reading. There's no question about that. But uh, And you do the autopsy and rule out uh, uh, anything that may have caused him to be rendered unconscious and so on. But you still don't know for sure whether, was it was it an accident or was it suicide? Or in some instances, it could possibly have been a a staged homicide. So um, that's that's what happens, and that's the way the process works, and that's the way a good medical legal investigative system functions. How many times in your life, with all of the cases that you've been not only consulting on but the autopsies that you've performed, did you find a politic? inside the process with law enforcement where you felt like everybody wasn't on the same page with respect to desiring the truth of the information like you were? You mean because of uh, political? Well, maybe uh, agenda. Yeah, maybe maybe law enforcement felt like they had already come to a conclusion early on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Well, um, that is, is not rare. I'm not, I wouldn't say it's frequent, but it is not rare. And that's an excellent question observation that you make because what we encounter in this business um, indeed are the prejudices and the egos of uh, different groups and different people and so on. And this is something that has to be constantly fought against uh, that I've been hammering this for 45 years in talks to my colleagues and papers I've written that, number one, you are a forensic scientist, you're not a policeman. Number two, you have to maintain objectivity and your personal, political, uh, social, philosophical beliefs uh, should not come into play. And you just look at those things uh, not in a dispassionate, uh, cold, heartless fashion, but um, with a, a sense of, of objectivity, uh, just as a any kind of a scientist should approach a problem. So the answer to your question is yes. Many times, um, as I say, um, uh, taking it uh, out of the uh, realm of rarity. Um, so I mean, it's it's you know it's it's not frequent, but uh, you know <laughs> it's it's not uh, terribly infrequent either that. Somebody makes up their mind in advance. It could be the family. They're darn certain about something, and they may have their own reasons, conscious or subconscious, um, um, surreptitious, clandestine, um, uh, malevolent cover-up, or just uh, uh, ignorance uh, or um, religious uh, beliefs exaggerated um, in their minds uh, and so on uh, that... um, try to push for something or the other and then and the police become involved and there there you know there are uh, prejudices um, conscious and subconscious there are beliefs and there are uh, what has offended me greatly uh, over the years uh, too many times in which police make up their minds prematurely uh, they <clears throat> they they are in a, a rush to judgment and they uh, just uh, go ahead and, and push. And now we come to the coroner ME, to the forensic pathologist. And it's up to you as the forensic pathologist, the forensic scientist, uh, to 
be sufficiently uh, courageous, uh, to be sufficiently uh, ethical, moral, uh, and professionally responsible uh, to reject uh, that kind of premature judgment and to say, whoa, you know, just take it easy, or to express the differences. I've had cases like that over the years, and then you have to deal with the homicide detectives. You know, you... Uh, then one of the, frankly, one of the professional pitfalls of our field is that too many forensic pathologists in coroner and ME offices become too buddy-buddy with uh, cops, homicide detectives, and district attorneys. And that is not right. The National Academy of Science put out a fantastic report in February 2009 and uh, they talk about these things, and they they strongly advocate something that I've been talking about for 45 years, not that they plagiarized it from me, uh, nor was I the first and the only person uh, to have promulgated this, but I sometimes was a lonely voice in the wilderness uh, pointing out that uh, ME, coroner's offices, forensic science laboratories, uh, called uh, still colloquially crime labs, that they should be separate and apart from, autonomous of, a law enforcement agency or a district attorney prosecutor's office. This is the National Academy of Science report, the most prestigious organization of scientists in the world. Uh, and they, 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 I was th- so thrilled when I received uh, that report and read it. I remember uh, it was around February 18th, February 19th, quite fortuitously, um, ironically, at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, where I was presenting a uh, uh, a paper uh, with some colleagues. And uh, that report came out, and we referred to it, uh, I remember, that evening. So um, that is something that has to be watched for. And uh, quite frankly, in my business as a consultant, I uh, I am very active as a forensic pathologist. I do about 350 autopsies myself every year for coroners in counties surrounding Allegheny County, Pittsburgh, and then I do private autopsies for families and attorneys, and then I do medical legal consultations in civil and criminal cases. And um, 95%, uh, uh, 98% of those cases uh, are death cases, and it's just amazing so often I'm not talking about stupidity uh, or saying that I'm some great, uh, brilliant uh, forensic scientist that comes up with things that nobody else sees. It's not that. It's a matter of interpretation. And it's a matter, as I've said before, of sometimes rushing to judgment for one reason or the other. Um, Think of the uh, case out there in California recently, um, Rebecca Zahal, a woman found hanging outside uh, the second floor of this mansion, multimillionaire boyfriend's mansion in Coronado. And, uh, and she was um, hanging out there. Her hands were tied behind her back in a slipknot arrangement. Her calves were tied. Uh, and the rope encircled her neck. Uh, and then overlying the rope, uh, her T-shirt uh, three times stuffed into her mouth. And she was completely naked. Um, so, you know, it didn't take long for them to say, ah, this is a suicide. Well, it may or may not be a suicide. I've never said that it absolutely was not a suicide, but I've raised a lot of questions, which I uh, won't get into right now in detail, but questions which have not been answered. But there's a good example of what I'm talking about 
the medical examiner and the, uh, the cops and everybody and the sheriff out there, they, uh, they just uh, tripped over themselves in rushing to call this a suicide. Um, you know, take your time, wait, you know, uh, evaluate, um, and do what you're supposed to do in a thorough and detailed fashion. So, we, you know, we have all kinds of travesties of justice ranging from total, uh, from quite uh, gross incompetence and inexperience, such as in the JFK assassination, uh, with two naval pathologists, Humes and Boswell, doing the autopsy on our president, dead of multiple gunshot wounds, questions to be determined, trajectory, angle, distance, range, sequence, correlation with multiple gunshot wounds in Governor Connolly, also wounded and so on. And so to do such a complex autopsy, they called upon Humes and Boswell from Bethesda Naval Hospital who had never done a single gunshot wound autopsy in their entire careers. I want to, re- I want to repeat that for emphasis should there be any listeners who still believe in the Warren Commission report or who believe that, gee, how can anybody have messed up? Well, start with that knowledge that the two guys who did the autopsy had never done a gunshot wound autopsy in their entire careers. Then you go um, to the Robert Kennedy case where the autopsy was thorough, meticulous, detailed, fantastic autopsy by an excellent forensic pathologist, Dr. Tom Noguchi, formerly a chief medical examiner coroner of Los Angeles, and uh, uh, in, in the trial, uh, Dr. Noguchi was never asked by the defense attorney about the distance and the range of the gunshot um, that killed <coughs> Senator Kennedy <coughs> that, that entered behind his right ear, uh, nor did the defense ever call uh, an expert of their own. So here you have an example where the attorney falls flat on his face for whatever reason. And then go to the next Kennedy case, Mary Jo Kopechny, there you have the body of a young woman found submerged in a car in Polka Pond um, up there in Massachusetts. And a guy with the fancy title of deputy medical examiner makes the amazing decision that it was not necessary to do an autopsy. And so no autopsy was done. So I always point out the three Kennedy cases to give an example of how uh, things can go awry, of how the system um, can be uh, misused for one reason or another. And just I'll throw in one more, Elvis Presley. Um, the medical examiner knew that if he did the autopsy, the results would have to be disclosed, if not the next day, the next week, the next month. There's no way they would keep that uh, undercover forever. So uh, they finessed it uh, by saying, well, the family wants a private autopsy. And they had the autopsy done by a private pathologist uh, at a hospital there in in Memphis. Uh, And yet the medical examiner, having signed off on the case, nevertheless, he goes and he holds a news conference. The autopsy isn't even over, obviously. Slides have not been examined, microscopic sections of the tissues. Um, Toxicology obviously has not been done. And he is announcing that Elvis Presley died as a result of heart disease. Well, Elvis Presley died. Elvis Presley died as a result of 12, 12 central nervous system drugs. He had uh, antidepressant, anti-anxiety, uh, sedatives, um, uh, painkillers, 12 central nervous system um, depressant drugs. That's what he died from. And this is an example, you see, of how the system it can be deliberately, deliberately um, abused, misused, 
uh, for uh, whatever the reasons and purposes were, namely to maintain a major industry, not only in Tennessee, but in America, um, of um, Elvis Presley. God forbid that it should get out that he died from drugs. Uh, so you know, I just give you these few examples to illustrate what I'm talking about. It, the, the office is as good as the person who runs it. The, honest, the office is as, as um, forthright and responsible um, in direct proportion uh, to the sense of personal and professional uh, ethics and morality and the uh, true sense of responsibility on the part of the individual who runs it. It doesn't make any difference whether it's coroner or medical examiner. What, dif- what the difference is based upon is the individual who runs it and what his or her uh, concept and understanding of the criminal uh, and civil justice systems are. John F. Kennedy, when an autopsy was done, his brain was missing. What do you think happened? Well, the brain was there when they did the autopsy. The brain was placed in formalin uh, to be fixed, which is quite proper. When a brain has been traumatized or when a brain demands a special attention and examination, some people are looking for Alzheimer's or other uh, disease processes. I encounter this uh, quite often. Um, what, what is done is the brain, uh, which uh, in the fresh state, is uh, a very, very uh, dense uh, viscous or semi-solid mass, however you want to characterize it. And uh, it's not good to uh, try to section and examine it. And if it's been um, in in part lacerated and torn apart by gunshot wounds or so on, then if you attempted to cut it, it'll fall apart. You won't be able to ascertain things like the trajectory and so on. So what you do is you take the brain and you place it in formalin, which is the fixative solution that we use. Hospitals use it for their surgical specimens, your appendix, uh, my gallbladder, uh, whatever uh, tissues come down in formalin for the hospital pathologist to examine. It's a universal fixative. So the brain, um, in, in the cases I've talked about, uh, is fixed in formalin for two weeks. Uh, this uh, permits it to harden. And, and now um, that uh, new uh, degree of, uh, of fixative, um, of fixed tissue permits you uh, to serially in parallel fashion uh, section uh, at, uh, you know, whatever quarter, half inch intervals from front to back. And now you can follow things. So let's talk about gunshot wounds, like in President Kennedy's case. That was the idea of the brain fixed for that purpose. So on December 6th, exactly two weeks later, following the assassination on November 22nd, 1963, if you look at the Warren Commission report and you look at the autopsy report, you will see the following sentence. The the pathologist, the two of them go there, and another... Uh, um, um, a person, I think a forensic photographer, so on, they go there, and, and this is the sentence you will find. The brain is not serially sectioned in order to preserve the specimen. Um, quote, unquote. Now, who the hell it was going to be preserved for, I don't know. Um, I don't think uh, Jackie Kennedy asked for it to be preserved, to be placed on her mantelpiece. Um, so they they did not section the brain, okay? So the brain is now, nobody ever says a word about the brain until I went down in August of 1972 as the first non-government appointed, non-government sponsored forensic pathologist 
given access to the JFK autopsy materials. I finally got that permission and went down in August of 1972. And I'm looking there, and I see um, in April of 1965, April 65, there is a memorandum of transfer signed by the president's uh, physician in which he lists everything that was being sent over to the National Archives uh, pursuant uh, to uh, an arrangement that they made with Jackie Kennedy, which she probably didn't even know anything about. Uh, it just asked to sign, uh, giving uh, all of these, uh, everything, everything. They came up with this absolutely Ill, illegal, invalid, cockamamie um, thing that was unique in the in the annals of investigative history anywhere, um, the, the, declaring that everything associated with the assassination of the president uh, was the prop, personal property of Jackie Kennedy. Uh, his clothing, uh, the x-rays, um, the tissues, the slides, and John Kennedy's clothing, and John Conley, uh, John, did I say Kennedy? John Conley's uh, clothing and x-rays, um, the, the alleged murder weapon, this manica Carcano, uh, bullet fragments, everything was her personal property, which of course she never had possession of and would have been the last person in the world probably to ever want to have in her possession. So uh, that's all on paper. So in April of 65, they list everything, an inventory. And in the inventory uh, are listed such things as the brain uh, in a metal container, uh, microscopic tissue slides, which we would examine um, to get an idea of how close the shots were fired and uh, maybe be able to help differentiate between entrance and exit. Some photographs of the uh, wounds uh, in his uh, back and uh, throat and, and so on, uh, et cetera, that's all listed. So the next document I look at is in October of 1966, one and a half years later. And now um, two of the pathologists who did the original autopsy and um, and uh, a forensic uh, photographer, another person go in, and now they are doing uh, their inventory uh, a year and a half later. And guess what? Guess what, Kim? What? Brain is no longer listed, and some of the photographs are no longer there, and the microscopic tissue slides are no longer there. I exposed that. It was August 27th. 1972 it was a page one story by Fred Graham of the New York Times. He at that time was a major uh, reporter with the New York Times, and he had helped uh, me uh, gain access. They were trying to assault and keep me uh, out of uh, of the National Archives, and and so I had established that relationship uh, with him, even though we had never personally met. So he had the the. Uh, exclusive story, so to speak. And it's page one, uh, Sunday edition of the New York Times, in which I um, I said and listed all these things that I've just told you. And so here we are, 2012, 40 years later, 40 years later, and nobody has officially accounted for those missing items. Oh, there'll be people, and there'll be people calling in or or... Uh, uh, sending you uh, internet messages or or whatever and so on. Oh, they know this and they know that and didn't the Kennedys do it and, and so on and so forth. Fine. You ask them to to point out and to show you one document, one document 
that ever, ever states that, um, that uh, the Kennedys or anybody else took it. You will find there is no such document of record, none whatsoever. So people are free to engage in whatever conjecture they wish. The point I'm making is that uh, there is no such uh, record, there is no such memorandum uh, or legal document of any kind, and if it were the Kennedys, then how come you know they they had every they would have had every right to to do that if they wanted to bury the brain um, with the body which had already been buried uh, that was their prerogative uh, uh, then they would have simply stated it and since all the hullabaloo uh, they would have just issued a statement uh, in whatever fashion they wished uh, and so on just saying that the president's brain was uh, buried um, uh, by the wish of the Kennedy family. Period. That has never, never been done. There has never been such a statement uh, uh, from the time that I exposed this in '72 to this date from anybody, and no such document has ever been found or revealed. So here we are with the missing brain. What's the significance of this? Oh, it's much more than just me uh, criticizing uh, some. Uh, a failure to document things, uh, it has to do with the head wound. Uh, where was the shot fired from? Was the president struck in the head uh, uh, by two different bullets fired simultaneously, one from the rear and one from the grassy knoll area behind the picket fence? Um, is that, is that, that's what it's all about, you see. And that is why, in my opinion, that brain was not sectioned because the uh, fixed brain, um, sectioned would have revealed the hemorrhagic tracks as the bullets move through the brain. And to this day, we have the raging controversy that ties in with so many things. The movement of the president's body in in the car, as shown on the Zapruder film, being struck supposedly by a bullet fired from the rear, uh, a military type of ammunition hitting him in the back of the head and yet he is driven backward and to the left he's not driven forward he's driven backward and uh, to the left um, with a bullet impacting with that kind of force in the back of his head and many other things uh, that we don't have time to get into but this is the significance of the missing brain and and as well as the missing uh, uh, slides uh, microscopic tissue slides and the missing uh, uh, photographs, um, and 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 that's why you know the JFK assassination, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, remains on unanswered, unsolved. And uh, last I heard, 75 uh, percent or so of the American public continues to reject the Warren Commission report and the cockamamie single bullet theory, which holds that one bullet produced seven wounds in two men. And uh, broke two ribs. Um, they broke a, a rib extensively, and Governor Connolly shattered the distal end of the radius, one of the two uh, large bones going from the elbow to the wrist. And Governor Connolly um, did horizontal and vertical gyrations that would make uh, the, the most exciting, thrilling um, roller coaster ride in America green with envy, uh, and uh, and yet emerged near pristine with a total weight loss of only one and a half percent essentially intact that's the single bullet theory that they came up with the warren commission report in order to hold oswald in as a sole assassin because uh, otherwise they would not have been able to have all the wounds inflicted um, in in the amount of time uh, that was set forth 
clearly in the Zapruder film, which was a kind of a chronometer uh, that could uh, tell exactly what happened at one eighteenth second intervals as the film was studied. One eighteenth second intervals. I had the opportunity to study the Zapruder film at Life Magazine headquarters in 1965 in New York City. And, uh, and there you go around the table uh, in snake-like fashion, and you go from one picture to another, and you study the assassination of President Kennedy and the wounding of Governor John Connolly at one eighteenth second intervals. Just think about that. And that's what, of course, the Warren Commission had done um, two years before. And to their horror, I wasn't there, but to their horror, I can just imagine, they said, oh, my God, um, how can that be? Because it takes 2.3 seconds from shot to shot for the top gunmen in the country to get off that Manneker Carcano piece of junk, non-automatic carbine rifle. Uh, how could this have happened? And that's when Arlen Specter, later to become senior U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania, at that time junior legal counsel, came up with the idea of one bullet producing seven wounds in these two men, as I've said, uh, the single bullet theory, which I dubbed a long time ago as the magic bullet theory. Um, a very magic bullet indeed. <laughs> Weren't you scared when you were putting forth something so different on a forensic level that you were revealing foul play? Weren't you concerned for your well-being and your family's well-being? Seriously. Well, uh, back then, there were some trepidations, uh, of course. I mean, it would be <laughs> those, natural. Those trepidations <laughs> probably were suppressed by virtue of my youthfulness and, <laughs> and, and the cockiness that goes with youth, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm glad that I wasn't as old as I am now because maybe I wouldn't be so cocky. Um, <laughs> and I feel young, you know, young people never think about dying, right? right. In any way, if you're young, <laughs> you're never going to die. So, uh, and then of course, as the years went by and all of this was uh, documented repeatedly and other people were talking about it, individuals and groups and organizations. So, you know, uh, no benefit in knocking me off. It isn't as if, like, you know, I, I'm taking some special secret to the grave with me that nobody else will be able to uh, talk about or champion with me gone. So I, uh, what do they say, safety in numbers, um, safety in disclosing your thoughts and so on. Um, let, me, let me say this uh, as a, uh, a kind of a uh, corollary to what you ask more than physical, ah, how, how I, I did pay, uh, I did pay a price. I paid a heavy price over the years. Uh, various things happened um, in, in my life, uh, legal matters, and in some professional organizations, uh, I had doors closed to me and so on. So, you know, I paid a price. Uh, but uh, that's okay. That's, uh, you know, you've got to decide. <laughs> you've got a big mouth, <laughs> and, and you've got to live with yourself. That's, uh, that's, that's the price. Uh, but I've done okay. I've, I've survived. I managed to become president of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and of the American College of Legal Medicine. Served 20 years, uh, two separate 10-year stints as coroner of Allegheny County. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that I did and said those things. I, I'm only sad that I will not be around, I'm afraid, uh, when the truth is ultimately disclosed because I believe it's going to be another couple of generations before the United States government will uh, feel free to, to let, let it all hang out. Uh, there's still uh, some people, uh, second, third generation, uh, related to the individuals involved, 
the groups uh, were involved and so on, and it's just still too hot an issue. Remember, you're talking about the assassination of of our president, and we know um, that it wasn't the Russians, Cubans, Chinese, it wasn't the mafia, although they were used secondarily, but not as the primary sole entity uh, planning and orchestrating this and so on. So you're talking about, um, you know, a homegrown uh, um, conspiracy. You're talking about the assassination of a president. You're talking about the overthrow of the government. And anywhere else in the world, we don't hesitate to call it what it is. Only in America do we have that hesitation. It was a coup d'etat. It was the overthrow of the government. In the only way that it could be accomplished, the physical elimination of a popular president who is going to be serving five more years and most likely to be followed by eight years uh, of his brother Robert and uh, the people who did not like uh, those uh, politics and who uh, hear a special tune when the Star Spangled Banner is played and uh, who have um, special feelings that ordinary citizens like you and me uh, um, in their eyes do not have. Uh, super super patriots with their own concept of what America should be. They weren't going to sit back and say, "Well, that's okay. Thirteen more years. Whittle, you know, like a ball game. Whittle. We come up in the ninth inning, or whittle the third period of a hockey game, or the last quarter in a basketball game, or so on." It doesn't work that way. Thirteen years in national international politics is as a lifetime. It can determine uh, things for centuries and centuries. And uh, if you've got very strong feelings and you're upset about what's happening in America, um, desegregation in the South, uh, the Cold War uh, with Russia, the detente uh, with Cuba, uh, and nuclear uh, bombs, um, uh, the whole thing, the Vietnam War. Uh, if you're not happy and very unhappy and you see America going to hell in a basket, then you're not going to beat the Kennedys at the polls. Uh, there's no way with their power, their money, their affluence, and their charisma their political strength, uh, you know you're looking at 13 years. And so the only way to deal with that is physical elimination. There is no other way. And that's what those two assassinations were about. It always comes out in the forensics. I want to ask you about exhuming a body. To the lay person, it would appear that when you exhume a body, that to go up and do another autopsy that you would lose a lot of what was originally discovered through decomposition. Well, you're absolutely right. And obviously, uh, there's no forensic pathologist who would not prefer uh, to do the first autopsy of the uh, recently deceased individual. But sometimes, uh, for a variety of reasons, exhumations are necessary. I just did one in California a few weeks ago on a young woman, and even though there was extensive decomposition, um, the question had to do with forensic toxicology. So we're able to get tissues and do tests. I did one about a year ago uh, down in Louisiana, somebody who had been dead for, I think, uh, seven years. And there again, it was forensic toxicology. It depends what you are looking for. If you're looking for something like a fractured skull, or you're looking for uh, uh, bullet wounds, uh, and so on, then um, you're, you're usually okay unless there's a terribly advanced uh, decomposition, uh, but you're usually able to uh, discern things. If you're looking for something uh, more subtle, uh, like a heart attack, 
uh, or whether the person had pneumonia or whether there was a blood clot, a pulmonary embolism uh, to the lungs and so on, then uh, essentially you can forget about it. Uh, and you just don't know. I did an autopsy um, a few years ago on a woman who died back in the early 60s. So that would have been 45 years, 45 years. Oh, my God. Uh, because she had worked in a uh, plant that dealt with nuclear energy, and there's a federal law that says anybody who worked in a nuclear plant who was exposed, if they develop any kind of malignant tumor, uh, it's compensable for the family, any kind. Um, and and so we did that. Got the, and I was totally, totally amazed. That body, um, I mean, was intact. I could examine, identify everything, the organs and so on. It was unbelievable. On the other hand, I've done autopsies on people that have been dead just a few months, paid a lot of money uh, for embalming and fancy caskets and so on, and uh, the degree and extent of decomposition is far advanced. You just don't know. I talk people usually out of exhumations much more often than I um, agree that they should go ahead. Um, number one, you've got uh, expense. Number two, the emotional uh, anguish um, and turmoil. And number three, then, uh, you know, is it worth it? Is it likely to come up with anything uh, or so on? And, it, you know, and it depends. But most of the time, you know, I talk myself out of money uh, trying to be an honest, uh, uh, moral, ethical person and uh, explain to people why it would not be uh, wise um to spend, uh, we're not, I mean, it, it would not lead to anything. On the other hand, um, if, uh, if, you, if you're looking for things, like I've said, uh, you, did they miss a, well, like I did an autopsy. It's a case I wrote about, I think, in my very first book, Cause of Death, a young uh, student at Indiana University of Pennsylvania um, who was found dead at the bottom of the steps. And they, they said that, uh, well, he uh, had, um, um, what did they say? I think that he had... Um, um, just uh, uh, he, he vomited, he was drunk, he vomited, and he died. So the family was not happy, and the other people who dug up the body years later, and to my amazement, they had not even opened up the skull. They had not opened up the skull. So opened up the head, and sure enough, there were fractures and hemorrhage. He had been tossed down the steps, and that case was converted uh, to, a, to a homicide. It's an example of, you know, Sometimes what you're looking for uh, is still able to be found. So that's the story with exhumations. I've done, I don't know, perhaps I've done more exhumations than any other forensic pathologist in the country. I don't know, uh, no way of comparing, but I've done um, now over the years uh, uh, certainly, uh, I don't know, uh, two, three dozen or so on. doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, when you think that most cases of the questionable death will have been autopsied, um, then you realize uh, exhumations don't happen often. Actually, I've done more than that, come to think of it, because I forgot that on the civil side, the exhuma body, uh, I do uh, cases, retired coal miners looking, their widows, families, black lung disease benefits, as they are called. And uh, so I've done several uh, there in other cases involving uh, questionable medical malpractice. So it's not limited to criminal cases, there are many reasons on the civil side that sometimes you do need to have proof and sometimes you think there's a good chance of obtaining it even from an embalmed, buried body. Don't you get nightmares of what you see all the time? <laughs> Seriously. Well, uh, no, I don't. Not that I'm 
heartless and sensitive or so on. I think of every case I handle as a human being that was dear to somebody, beloved by someone, um, and so on. And I, you know, I try to keep that in mind always. But, um, you know, certainly you, you know, and look, uh, I have eyes and nose just like you. Um, I see, and if it's horrible looking to you, it's horrible looking to me. And if it smells bad to you, it smells bad to me. Um, you know, it isn't like you develop some kind of immunity, like you get a, 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 a shot for whooping cough or typhoid fever or polio, and then you're immune. No, it doesn't work that way. So my senses remain the same as yours. I think what carries me and, and the people, my colleagues who do this work, is the knowledge that what you're doing is so very, very important, uh, really, without good forensic science, without good, competent medical legal autopsies performed by trained forensic pathologists, can you imagine, can you just begin to imagine the, the degree and extent of injustice um, uh, across the board in civil and criminal matters? That's why autopsies are so very important. I, I have quite a few cases over the years, and it would come to me um, years later and so on, and, and what they're looking for, what they need to prove it's too late. It's too late. Um, they they failed to get an autopsy, and 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 that's yeah. I'm not you know I'm not advocating autopsies for everybody in the world. In the majority of cases, they're not necessary. But if people have questions, and if people are thinking about medical legal litigation, exposure to asbestos, and the development of mesothelioma, medical malpractice, um, traumatic injuries, and a motor vehicular accident. Um, heart attack related to stress at work or so on, uh, possibility of foul play, uh, someone been poisoned um, uh, or so on. You know, you, you've just got to uh, think about those things a little bit and, you know, and that's the time to do it. In toxicology, of course, once the body's been embalmed, a lot of these things are destroyed. Not everything, but a lot of things are destroyed and you can't find uh, certain things. Uh, so, you know, I, I always... Uh, if I'm asked, you know, I tell people, you know, get the autopsy done and and answer your questions and have it in place, and you'll know then uh, one way or the other. Um, people make make big mistakes uh, in failing to do that. I have a couple other questions for you. One is in your book, From Crime Scene to Courtroom, Examining the Mysteries Behind Famous Cases, Michael Jackson, Casey Anthony, Drew Peterson, Brian Jones, and more that you wrote with Donna Kaufman. Yes. She did a great job, too. Donna is wonderful. She and I have collaborated on this book and the previous book, A Question of Murder, uh, dealing with Anna Nicole Smith and Daniel Smith and so on. Donna is a fantastic a writer and a tremendous uh, uh, investigator. She, she's wonderful. You make a great team. Yeah, well, we, we do. We enjoy working with each other. And uh, this, this book from crime scene to courtroom that we've gotten so many wonderful uh, comments and accolades on because we were right up to date <laughs> with Jackson and Casey Anthony. Right. Peterson still to come up and so on. Um, some excellent cases. So I want to ask you a question. On page 104, you said... Reasonable doubt does not mean reason to doubt. Can you explain it to us? Well, because I think most of us don't understand. Well, how that whole it's, thing happened. It's, it's and, a play. It's a play on words. Yeah. Which case is that referring to? Casey Anthony. Casey Anthony. Yeah. Reasonable doubt is not the same as reason to doubt. Well, I guess what the point we were making is uh, that 
um, just because uh, sometimes you're not given a complete answer, um, and uh, uh, there can then be you know some reasonable doubt that in 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 certain cases, in my opinion, should not be. Um, uh, construed as should not be accepted as being uh, um, guilty, uh, you know, well, guilty or not guilty. So you got to think uh, through things. Uh, forensic science is not an absolute science. That's a point I wish to make. Um, I constantly make it and remind my colleagues too. We are not physicists, chemists, or mathematicians or astronomers. Um, forensic scientists can have differences of opinion and. The, the, the field itself, as pointed out by the National Academy of Science, is not perfect. The only, the only incontrovertible forensic science is cellular DNA, not even mitochondrial DNA, only cellular DNA. We used to think that well, fingerprints, well, you, the Bradley Mayfield case, looked that up following the bombing of a train uh, outside Madrid in Spain, and the FBI identified fingerprints that they said belonged to uh, a... Uh, uh, a, a lawyer in uh, in Oregon named Bradley Mayfield, and the Spanish authorities disagreed, and ultimately it was shown not to be Bradley Mayfield. So fingerprints are not 100%. And, and, and things like hair and fiber analysis and so on, something that forensic scientists have to keep in mind. So uh, coming back then to your question, and as it applies and plays out in a, in a trial, you know, the fact that not everything is answered for you with 100% precision and absolute certainty should not cause you uh, to, I think, uh, play out uh, to the point that you don't, you know, you don't accept something. You see, that, that's the purpose of that statement. I think that's the point that we were trying to make, that, you know, you're, and, and in fact, um, a good judge will, uh, a good attorney will object, and a good judge will not, will not permit a medical scientific person to issue a to make a statement uh, with absolute uh, science, scientific certainty uh, should not allow that and good judges will not uh, you express your opinions quote with reasonable medical or scientific certainty or reasonable medical scientific probability that's the language that is used in courts in America you don't give opinions with absolute certainty um, that in my opinion is wrong and should not be engaged in by a good, honest forensic scientist. You said the Casey Anthony verdict was a bizarre aberration. The best news <laughs> yes. is that it will be discussed in law schools and in the media for years to come. It's yes. not justice for this poor slain child, but it will have to be enough. You also talked about sometimes we'll never know every detail of a crime, but reasonable doubt doesn't mean finding a reason to doubt. It means using logic and evidence to create a plausible scenario. And then you talked about the Casey Anthony case. Right, exactly. And that's what I gets back to what I just said. Remember this, 99% of murders eliminating those manslaughter situations and somebody somebody gets uh, teed off at someone in a, in a bar and shoots or stabs or beats him or something. But let's talk about murders that occur in a more private fashion. You know, 90, 95% are not going to have eyewitnesses. Think about that. So then what are you dealing with? You're dealing with evidence. Uh, and so now you got to apply the reasonable man, reasonable woman uh, approach and so on. Uh, you can't say, well, gee, uh, nobody saw him, or, uh, you know, or, or how do we know there were Casey Anthony, uh, a two-year-old child found buried in the swamp. What? Were, and she, she, she never told her for one month, one month, 
living with her parents. She never told them that the child was missing. And uh, made up a cockamamie story about some babysitter that doesn't even exist and never did exist. I'm not prosecutorially biased. I'm, I may be the least prosecutorially biased forensic pathologist practicing actively in America. Um, a well-known thing around the, uh, the circuit, believe me. But I'll state without any hesitation, I think the Casey Anthony verdict was an abomination. It was a verdict of a jury that must have come from a distant planet. I don't know if it was you or your colleague had said that the attorney for Casey Anthony had a cosmic clearance, security clearance. Cosmic security clearance? Oh, you mean, oh, that's a facetious type comment. Oh, well, I, I didn't know what that, what does that mean? <laughs> I, I think that's pure sarcasm. Okay, very good. Good to note. <laughs> <laughs> a cosmic, with envy, I give credit to Donna. <laughs> Do you think that it is in the best interest of the legal profession and justice in general where the accused does not have to take the stand? Well, I, I do agree with that policy. It's, it's, it, as you know, it goes back to English common law centuries and centuries. And, no, I, I agree. And, of course, uh, you know, you, you pay a price. Look, I think in the majority, my opinion, I, I don't know how to prove this, in my opinion, I think it winds up hurting uh, the defendant by not taking a stand in uh, many kinds of cases um, where, you know, the question is uh, he wasn't there or certain things didn't happen or so on. The jury wants to hear, don't they? They want to hear. Uh, but it's a strategic decision to be made by the defendant and his, her attorney. Um, on the other hand, um, they may feel that going on the witness stand will open up uh, too many other doors and so on. So I think the rule in place is one that is honored in time um, in, over the centuries, and I think uh, it will remain in place, uh, you know, likely forever in a democracy like ours as we know it uh, today. But, you know, is it uh, does it thwart uh, justice? Uh, no, it makes it more difficult maybe for the jury and so on, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous game for the defendant, but uh, the danger of going on the stand is just greater. So <laughs> you pick the lesser of two evils. You said that you were concerned that some new forensic technology like air sampling and post-mortem hair, is it binding or banding? Yeah, ba banding, banding. Banding and computer software analysis may be looked at in courtrooms as junk science versus potent tools. Is that because of the Casey Anthony case? Well, yeah, I'm referring to some things in the Casey Anthony case. And, and I get the point that, I, that Don and I were making there is that I, I believe that that sort of stuff should be admissible and given whatever weight a jury wants to give. Remember, in the Casey Anthony case, uh, people, some people have criticized uh, that and called it junk science. The fact of the matter is that the person who gave that testimony is the guy who is the lead scientist in the body farm in Tennessee. Uh, this guy, they bury bodies under all kinds of conditions, and then they go, you know, to see how the body decomposes in sand, uh, in mud, in water, uh, cold, and heat, um, uh, and, and 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 so on and so forth. This guy, you know, this is what he does for a living. This is what he does for a living. Well, if a guy like that can't testify about the very special odor of, of a dead body, then who can? You see what I mean? So that's why I'm saying some people who have 
called that junk science. It depends on who's giving it. I don't think that someone who just has seen an occasional body um, or so on uh, would be an appropriate person. But I, you know, I've smelled, uh, I've smelled. Uh, I don't know how many dead bodies, well, the 17,000 that I've done myself and others that I've attended over the years, I think I have some idea of how a dead body smells. Um, and I, I would never state that with 100% certainty, but I would say I, in some cases, um, I, I've, never been, I've never given this testimony. I've never been asked to give this testimony, but I'm just saying that where I ask, doctor, um, with reasonable, reasonable medical certainty, um, based upon your experience in having smelled um, 20,000 dead bodies um, in your career um, and so on, um, when you walked into that room and you smelled um, before it had been ventilated or anything else had been introduced, did you have an opinion as to whether or not the odor that you detected was consistent with or suggestive of a dead body. You see what I mean there? Right. So, so I would say yes or I would say no. I wouldn't state that with absolute certainty. No way. But, but should my opinion um, not, uh, uh, would you, uh, you have a butcher, I don't mean to be crude, a butcher who has slaughtered animals, cut up pigs and cows and sheep and, and, and what have you, and you want to test, you know, your testimony as to whether or not uh, the odor was consistent with a slaughtered uh, animal or, the, or so on. Would, would you say, well, what the hell does he know? I mean, you know, so think about it. It's a great point. I want to ask you one last thing about Colonel Philip Michael Shue. Yes. In reading it, and again, I don't want to give it away because I want people to pick up the book from Crime Scene <laughs> to Courtroom, but it really felt as if there was interference from the military in the entire investigation into his passing. Yes. I agree with you completely. You're very perceptive. Uh, absolutely. Uh, there's no question that the military, um, in my opinion, um, uh, behind the scenes, indirectly, uh, uh, exercised, exerted influence, and so on. There's another case of, of rush to judgment in which uh, we can tell your listeners this uh, case in which they signed this bizarre death out as a, as a suicide, and I think we... Uh, pr pretty much proved and subsequent court uh, action litigation uh, went along with it that this was a homicide. So uh, this gets back to what I was talking about before, people uh, rushing to judgment, number one, and sometimes people being influenced, either knowingly or unwittingly uh, manipulated, uh, controlled, influenced by uh, third parties. Or given an order and threatened. <laughs> that exists, too. <laughs> yes. Uh, it exists. And there are different kinds of threats. You know, it's not always a threat of life. You know, there are other kinds of threats, right? Sure. Absolutely. And lastly, I'd like to know at what time in your life you decided that this calling was yours. Well, very quickly, it's like this. I was an only child. My parents were immigrants uh, um, from Europe and uh, from the time before I, I could remember, and from the time that I can remember, my father simply told me I was going to be a doctor. So I never questioned that. I was an <laughs> obedient son, and I was going to be a doctor. And so I was pre-med, and uh, I became very active on campus, and I was a big man on campus, a president of student body, and president of my fraternity, and a bunch of other things. Even as a Jew, I was elected as president of the YMCA, <laughs> um, uh, and so on. So when you were a big man on campus, it was assumed that you were pre-law, right? I mean, no pre-med students didn't have time to screw around with that sort of stuff. So maybe that was the first time I began to think about law school. In the meantime, 
I applied and was accepted to med school and continued to think about law um, and uh, got in touch with uh, uh, some prominent people in the field early on in my junior year. And at that point, I made up my mind that I was going to go to law school and uh, that I wanted to do and be involved with legal medicine. And then I decided I did not want to be a general practitioner or both. I wanted to be a specialist. And at that point, I thought, what is the specialty that is most frequently and extensively and meaningfully involved uh, with medical legal matters? And that obviously, unquestionably, is forensic pathology. And that's when I decided then, um, after my internship, uh, to uh, undertake a residency in pathology, which I did for five years, including that fifth-year fellowship in forensic pathology. So that's how it uh, all came about. I really want to invite you back, and I want well, to. I want my to, pleasure, and I, I want to thank you. you so so much for joining us, Cyril. Well, Wack. I thank you for your courtesy and thoughtfulness and hospitality and having me. It would be my pleasure to be with you again. Let me know, okay? I would love it. Thank you All so right. much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye bye.